Story two of Youth and the Bright Medusa and the Troll Garden by Willa Cather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story two The Diamond Mine Parts one and two. One. I first became aware that Cressida Garnet was on board when I saw young men with cameras going up to the boat deck. In that exposed spot she was good-naturedly posing for them, amid fluttering lavender scarfs, wearing a most unseaworthy hat, her broad, vigorous face wreathed in smiles. She was too much an American not to believe in publicity. All advertising was good. If it was good for breakfast foods, it was good for prima donna, especially for a prima donna who would never be any younger, and who had just announced her intention of marrying a fourth time. Only a few days before, when I was lunching with some friends at Sherry's, I had seen Jerome Brown come in with several younger men, looking so pleased and prosperous that I exclaimed upon it. His affairs, someone explained, are looking up. He's going to marry Cressida Garnet. Nobody believed it at first, but since she confirms it, he's getting all sorts of credit. That woman's a diamond mine. If there was ever a man who needed a diamond mine at hand, immediately convenient, it was Jerome Brown. But as an old friend of Cressida Garnet, I was sorry to hear that mining operations were to be begun again. I had been away from New York and had not seen Cressida for a year. Now I paused on the gangplank to note how very like herself she still was, and with what undiminished zeal she went about even the most trifling things that pertained to her profession. From that distance I could recognize her carrying smile, and even what, in Columbus, we used to call the garnet look. At the foot of the stairway leading up to the boat-deck stood two of the factors in Cressida's destiny. One of them was her sister, Miss Julia, a woman of fifty with a relaxed mournful face, an aging skin that browned slowly, like meerschaum, and the unmistakable look by which one knew a garnet. Beside her, pointedly ignoring her, smoking a cigarette while he ran over the passenger list with supercilious almond eyes, stood a youth in a pink shirt and a green plush hat, holding a French bulldog on the leash. This was Horace, Cressida's only son. He, at any rate, had not the garnet look. He was rich and ruddy, indolent and insolent with soft oval cheeks and the blooming complexion of twenty-two. There was the beginning of a silky shadow on his upper lip. He seemed like a ripe fruit grown out of a rich soil. Oriental, his mother called his peculiar lusciousness. His aunt's restless and aggrieved glance kept flecking him from the side, but the two were as motionless as the bulldog, standing there on his bench legs and surveying his travelling basket with loathing. They were waiting, in constrained immobility, for Cressida to descend and reanimate them, will them to do or to be something. 
Forward, by the rail, I saw the stooped, eager back for which I was unconsciously looking, Miletus Popus, the Greek Jew, Cressida's accompanist and shadow. We were all there, I thought with a smile, except Jerome Brown. The first member of Cressida's party with whom I had speech was Mr. Popus. When we were two hours out, I came upon him in the act of dropping overboard a steamer cushion made of American flags. Cressida never sailed, I think, that one of these vivid comforts of travel did not reach her at the dock. Popus recognized me just as the striped object left his hand. He was standing with his arms still extended over the rail, his fingers contemptuously sprung back. "'Lest we forget,' he said with a shrug, "'does Madame Cressida know we are to have the pleasure of your company for this voyage?' He spoke deliberate grammatical English. He despised the American rendering of the language, but there was an indescribably foreign quality in his voice, a something muted. And though he aspirated his th's with such conscientious thoroughness, there was always the thud of a d in them popus stood before me in a short tightly buttoned gray coat and cap exactly the color of his grayish skin and hair and waxed moustache a monocle on a very wide black ribbon dangled over his chest as to his age i could not offer a conjecture in the twelve years i had known his thin lupine face behind cressida's shoulder it had not changed. I was used to his cold, supercilious manner, to his alarming deep-set eyes, very close together, in color a yellowish-green, and always gleaming with something like defeated fury, as if he were actually on the point of having it out with you, or with the world, at last. I asked him if Cressida had engagements in London. Quite so. The Manchester Festival, some concerts at Queen Hall, and the opera at Covent Garden, a rather special production of the operas of Mozart. That she can still do quite well, which is not at all, of course, what we might have expected, and only goes to show that our Madame Cressida is now, as always, a charming exception to rules. Popa's tone about his client was consistently patronizing, and he was always trying to draw one into a conspiracy of two, based on a mutual understanding of her shortcomings. I approached him on the one subject I could think of, which was more personal than his usefulness to Cressida, and asked him whether he still suffered from facial neuralgia as much as he had done in former years, and whether he was therefore dreading London, where the climate used to be so bad for him. And still is, he caught me up, and is still. For me to go to London is martyrdom, chère madame. In New York it is bad enough, but in London it is the auto de fe, nothing less. My nervous system is exotic in any country washed by the Atlantic Ocean, and it shivers like a little hairless dog from Mexico. It never relaxes. I think I have told you about my favorite city in the middle of Asia, La Sainte-Azie, where the rainfall is absolutely nil, and you are protected on every side by hundreds of meters of warm, dry sand. 
I was there when I was a child once, and it is still my intention to retire there when I have finished with all this. I would be there now, now, his voice rose querulously, if Madame Cressida did not imagine that she needs me, and her fancies, you know, he flourished his hands, one gives in to them. In humouring her caprices, you and I have already played some together. We were approaching Cressida's deck-chairs, ranged under the open windows of her stateroom. She was already recumbent, swathed in lavender scarves, and wearing purple orchids, doubtless from Jerome Brown. At her left, Horace had settled down to a French novel, and Julia Garnet, at her right, was complainingly regarding the grey horizon. On seeing me, Cressida struggled under her fur-lined robes and got to her feet, which was more than Horace or Miss Julia managed to do. Miss Julia, as I could have foretold, was not pleased. All the Garnets had an awkward manner with me. Whether it was that I reminded them of things they wished to forget, or whether they thought I esteemed Cressida too highly and the rest of them too lightly, I do not know. But my appearance upon their scene always put them greatly on their dignity. After Horace had offered me his chair, and Miss Julia had said doubtfully that she thought I was looking rather better than when she last saw me, Cressida took my arm and walked me toward the stern. "'Do you know, Carrie, I half wondered whether I shouldn't find you here or in London, because you always turn up at critical moments in my life.' She pressed my arm confidentially, and I felt that she was once more wrought up to a new purpose. I told her that I had heard some rumour of her engagement. "'It's quite true, and it's all that it should be,' she assured me. I'll tell you about it later, and you'll see that it's a real solution. They are against me, of course, all except Horace. He has been such a comfort. Horace's support, such as it was, could always be had in exchange for his mother's signature, I suspected. The pale May day had turned bleak and chilly, and we sat by an open hatchway which emitted warm air from somewhere below. At this close range I studied Cressida's face, and felt reassured of her unabated vitality. The old force of will was still there, and with it her characteristic optimism, the old hope of a solution. "'You have been in Columbus lately?' she was saying. "'No, you needn't tell me about it,' with a sigh. "'Why is it, Caroline, that there is so little of my life I would be willing to live over again?' so little that I can even think of without depression. Yet I've really not such a bad conscience. It may mean that I still belong to the future more than to the past, do you think? My assent was not warm enough to fix her attention, and she went on thoughtfully. Of course, it was a bleak country and a bleak period, but I've sometimes wondered whether the bleakness may not have been in me, too for it has certainly followed me. There, that is no way to talk. She drew herself up from a momentary attitude of dejection. Sea air always lets me down at first. That's why it's so good for me in the end. 
I think Julia always lets you down, too," I said bluntly, but perhaps that depression works out in the same way. Cressida laughed. Julia is rather more depressing than Georgie, isn't she? But it was Julia's turn. I can't come alone, and they've grown to expect it. They haven't, either of them, much else to expect. At this point the deck steward approached us with a blue envelope. A wireless for you, Madame Garnet. Cressida put out her hand with impatience, thanked him graciously, and with every indication of pleasure tore open the blue envelope. It's from Jerome Brown, she said, with some confusion, as she folded the paper small and tucked it between the buttons of her close-fitting gown. Something he forgot to tell me. How long shall you be in London? Oh, good. I want you to meet him. We shall probably be married there as soon as my engagements are over. She rose. Now I must write some letters. Keep two places at your table so that I can slip away from my party and dine with you sometimes. I walked with her toward her chair, in which Mr. Poppas was now reclining. He indicated his readiness to rise, but she shook her head and entered the door of her deck suite. As she passed him, his eye went over her with assurance until it rested upon the folded bit of blue paper in her corsage. He must have seen the original rectangle in the steward's hand. Having found it again, he dropped back between Horace and Miss Julia, whom I think he disliked no more than he did the rest of the world. He liked Julia quite as well as he liked me, and he liked me quite as well as he liked any of the women to whom he would be fitfully agreeable upon the voyage. Once or twice during each crossing he did his best and made himself very charming indeed to keep his hand in, for the same reason that he kept a dummy keyboard in his stateroom somewhere down in the bowels of the boat. He practiced all the small economies, paid the minimum rate, and never took a deck-chair, because, as Horace was usually in the card-room, he could sit in Horace's. The three of them sat staring at the swell, which was steadily growing heavier. Both men had covered themselves with rugs, after dutifully bundling up Miss Julia. As I walked back and forth on the deck, I was struck by their various degrees of inexpressiveness opaque brown eyes, almond-shaped and only half-open, wolfish green eyes, close-set and always doing something, with a crooked gleam boring in this direction or in that, watery grey eyes like the thick edges of broken skylight glass. I would have given a great deal to know what was going on behind each pair of them. These three were sitting there in a row because they were all woven into the pattern of one large and rather splendid life. Each had a bond, and each had a grievance. If they could have their will, what would they do with the generous, credulous creature who nourished them, I wondered? How deep a humiliation would each egotism exact? They would scarcely have harmed her in fortune or in person though I think Miss Julia looked forward to the day when Cressida would break and could be mourned over. But the fire at which she warmed herself, the little secret hope, 
the illusion, ridiculous or sublime, which kept her going, that they would have stamped out on the instant, with the whole garnet pack behind them, to make extinction sure. All, except perhaps Miletus Pappas. He was a vulture of the vulture race, and he had the beak of one. But I always felt that if ever he had her thus at his mercy, if ever he came upon the softness that was hidden under so much hardness, the warm credulity under a life so dated and scheduled and reported and generally exposed, he would hold his hand and spare. The weather grew steadily rougher. Miss Julia at last plucked Pappas by the sleeve and indicated that she wished to be released from her wrappings. When she disappeared, there seemed to be every reason to hope that she might be off the scene for a while. As Cressida said, if she had not brought Julia, she would have had to bring Georgie or some other garnet. Cressida's family was like that of the unpopular Prince of Wales, of whom, when he died, some wag wrote, If it had been his brother, better him than another. If it had been his sister, no one would have missed her. Miss Julia was dampening enough, but Miss Georgie was aggressive and intrusive. She was out to prove to the world, and more especially to Ohio, that all the Garnets were as like Cressida as two peas. Both sisters were club women, social service workers, and directors in musical societies, and they were continually travelling up and down the Middle West to preside at meetings or to deliver addresses. They reminded one of two sombre, bumping electrics, rolling about with no visible means of locomotion, always running out of power and lying beached in some inconvenient spot until they received a check or a suggestion from Cressy. I was only too well acquainted with the strained, anxious expression that the sight of their handwriting brought to Cressida's face when she ran over her morning mail at breakfast. She usually put their letters by to read, when she was feeling up to it, and hastened to open others which might possibly contain something gracious or pleasant. Sometimes these family unburdenings lay about unread for several days. Any other letters would have got themselves lost, but these bulky epistles, never properly fitted to their envelopes, seemed immune to mischance and unfailingly disgorged to Cressida long explanations as to why her sisters had to do and to have certain things precisely upon her account and because she was so much a public personage. The truth was that all the Garnets, and particularly her two sisters, were consumed by an habitual, bilious, unenterprising envy of Cressy. They never forgot that no matter what she did for them, or how far she dragged them about the world with her, she would never take one of them to live with her in her Tenth Street house in New York. They thought that was the thing they most wanted. But what they wanted, in the last analysis, was to be Cressida. For twenty years she had been plunged in struggle, fighting for her life at first, then for a beginning, for growth, and at last for eminence and perfection, fighting in the dark and afterward in the light, which, with her bad preparation, with her uninspired youth already behind her, 
took even more courage. During those twenty years the Garnets had been comfortable and indolent and vastly self-satisfied, and now they expected Cressida to make them equal sharers in the finer rewards of her struggle. When her brother Buchanan told me he thought Cressida ought to make herself one of them, he stated the converse of what he meant. They coveted the qualities which had made her success, as well as the benefits which came from it. More than her furs, or her fame, or her fortune, they wanted her personal effectiveness, her brighter glow, and stronger will to live. Sometimes, I have heard Cressida say, looking up from a bunch of those sloppily written letters, sometimes I get discouraged. For several days the rough weather kept Miss Julia cloistered in Cressida's deck suite with the maid Louisa, who confided to me that the Signorina Garnet was difficile. After dinner I usually found Cressida unencumbered, as Horace was always in the card-room, and Mr. Poppas either nursed his neuralgia or went through the exercise of making himself interesting to some one of the young women on board. One evening, the third night out, when the sea was comparatively quiet and the sky was full of broken black clouds, silvered by the moon at their ragged edges, Cressida talked to me about Jerome Brown. I had known each of her former husbands. The first one, Charlie Wilton, Horace's father, was my cousin. He was organist in a church in Columbus, and Cressida married him when she was nineteen. He died of tuberculosis two years after Horace was born. Cressida nursed him through a long illness, and made the living besides. Her courage during the three years of her first marriage was fine enough to foreshadow her future to any discerning eye, and it had made me feel that she deserved any number of chances at marital happiness. There had, of course, been a particular reason for each subsequent experiment, and a sufficiently alluring promise of success. Her motives, in the case of Jerome Brown, seemed to me more vague and less convincing than those which she had explained to me on former occasions. "'It's nothing hasty,' she assured me. "'It's been coming on for several years. He has never pushed me, but he was always there, someone to count on. Even when I used to meet him at the Whitings, while I was still singing at the Metropolitan, I always felt that he was different from the others.' that if I were in straits of any kind, I could call on him. You can't know what that feeling means to me, Carrie. If you look back, you'll see it's something I've never had. I admitted that, in so far as I knew, she had never been much addicted to leaning on people. I've never had anyone to lean on, she said with a short laugh. Then she went on quite seriously, Somehow my relations with people always become business relations in the end. I suppose it's because, except for a sort of professional personality, which I've had to get, just as I've had to get so many other things, I've not very much that's personal to give people. I've had to give too much else. I've had to try too hard for people who wouldn't try at all. Which, I put in firmly, has done them no good, and has robbed the people who really cared about you. 
By making me grubby, you mean? By making you anxious and distracted so much of the time. Empty. She nodded mournfully. Yes, I know. You used to warn me. Well, there's not one of my brothers and sisters who does not feel that I carried off the family success, just as I might have carried off the family silver, if there'd been any. They take the view that there were just so many prizes in the bag. I reached in and took them, so there were none left for the others. At my age, that's a dismal truth to waken up to. Cressida reached for my hand and held it a moment, as if she needed courage to face the facts in her case. When one remembers one's first success, how one hoped to go home like a Christmas tree full of presents, how much one learns in a lifetime. That year, when Horace was a baby, and Charlie was dying, and I was touring the West with the Williams Band, it was my feeling about my own people that made me go at all. Why I didn't drop myself into one of those muddy rivers, or turn on the gas in one of those dirty hotel rooms, I don't know to this day. At twenty-two you must hope for something more than to be able to bury your husband decently, and what I hoped for was to make my family happy. It was the same afterward in Germany. A young woman must live for human people. Horace wasn't enough. I might have had lovers, of course. I suppose you will say it would have been better if I had. Though there seemed no need for me to say anything, I murmured that I thought there was more likely to be limits to the rapacity of a lover than to that of a discontented and envious family. Well, Cressida gathered herself up, once I got out from under it all, didn't I? And perhaps in a milder way, such a release can come again. You were the first person I told when I ran away with Charlie, and for a long while you were the only one who knew about Blasius Buchalka. That time, at least, I shook the garnets. I wasn't distracted or empty. That time I was all there. Yes, I echoed her, that time you were all there. It's the greatest possible satisfaction to remember it. But even that, she sighed, was nothing but lawyers and accounts in the end, and a hurt, a hurt that has lasted. I wonder what is the matter with me. The matter with Cressida was that more than any woman I have ever known, she appealed to the acquisitive instinct in men. But this was not easily said, even in the brutal frankness of a long friendship. We would probably have gone further into the Buchalka chapter of her life, had not Horace appeared and nervously asked us if we did not wish to take a turn before we went inside. I pleaded indolence, but Cressida rose and disappeared with him. Later I came upon them, standing at the stern, above the huddled steerage deck, which was by this time bathed in moonlight under an almost clear sky. Down there, on the silvery floor, little hillocks were scattered about under quilts and shawls, family units, presumably, male, female, and young. Here and there a black shawl sat alone, nodding. They crouched submissively under the moonlight as if it were a spell. In one of those hillocks a baby was crying, 
but the sound was faint and thin, a slender protest which aroused no response. Everything was so still that I could hear snatches of the low talk between my friends. Cressida's voice was deep and entreating. She was remonstrating with Horace about his losses at bridge, begging him to keep away from the card-room. "'But what else is there to do on a trip like this, my lady?' he expostulated, tossing his spark of a cigarette-end overboard. "'What is there now to do?' "'Oh, Horace,' she murmured, "'how can you be so? If I were twenty-two and a boy with someone to back me—' Horace drew his shoulders together and buttoned his topcoat. "'Oh, I've not your energy, mother dear. We make no secret of that. I am as I am. I didn't ask to be born into this charming world.' To this gallant speech Cressida made no answer. She stood with her hand on the rail, and her head bent forward, as if she had lost herself in thought, the ends of her scarf lifted by the breeze, fluttered upward, almost transparent in the argent light. Presently she turned away, as if she had been alone and were leaving only the night sea behind her, and walked slowly forward, a strong, solitary figure on the white deck, the smoke-like scarf twisting and climbing and falling back upon itself in the light over her head. She reached the door of her stateroom and disappeared. Yes, she was a garnet, but she was also Cressida, and she had done what she had done. 2. My first recollections of Cressida Garnet have to do with the Columbus Public Schools, a little girl with sunny brown hair and eager bright eyes, looking anxiously at the teacher and reciting the names and dates of the presidents. James Buchanan, 1857-1861, Abraham Lincoln, 1861-1865, etc. Her family came from North Carolina, and they had that to feel superior about before they had Cressy. The garnet look, indeed, though not based upon a strong family resemblance, was nothing more than the restless, preoccupied expression of an inflamed sense of importance. The father was a Democrat, in the sense that other men were doctors or lawyers. He scratched up some sort of poor living for his family behind office windows inscribed with the words, Real Estate, Insurance, Investments but it was his political faith that in a republican community gave him his feeling of eminence and originality the garnet children were all in school then scattered along from the first grade to the ninth in almost any room of our school building you might chance to enter you saw the self-conscious little face of one or another of them they were restrained uncomfortable children not frankly boastful, but insinuating, and somehow forever demanding special consideration, and holding grudges against teachers and classmates who did not show it them, all but Cressida, who was naturally as sunny and open as a May morning. It was no wonder that Cressy ran away with young Charlie Wilton, who hadn't a shabby thing about him except his health. He was her first music teacher, the choir-master of the church in which she sang. 
Charlie was very handsome, the romantic son of an old, impoverished family. He had refused to go into a good business with his uncles, and had gone abroad to study music when that was an extravagant and picturesque thing for an Ohio boy to do. His letters home were handed round among the members of his own family, and of other families equally conservative. Indeed, Charlie, and what his mother called his music, were the romantic expression of a considerable group of people, young cousins and old aunts, and quiet-dwelling neighbors, allied by the amity of several generations. Nobody was properly married in our part of Columbus unless Charlie Wilton, and no other, played the wedding march. The old ladies of the first church used to say that he hovered over the keys like a spirit. At nineteen, Cressida was beautiful enough to turn a much harder head than the pale, ethereal one Charlie Wilton bent above the organ that the chapter which began so gracefully ran on into such a stretch of grim hard prose was simply cressida's relentless bad luck in her undertakings in whatever she could lay hold of with her two hands she was successful but whatever happened to her was almost sure to be bad her family her husband's her son would have crushed any other woman i have ever known Cressida lived, more than most of us, for others, and what she seemed to promote among her beneficiaries was indolence and envy and discord, even dishonesty and turpitude. Her sisters were fond of saying, at club luncheons, that Cressida had remained untouched by the breath of scandal, which was not strictly true there were captious people who objected to her long and close association with miletus popas her second husband ransom mccord the foreign representative of the great mccord harvester company whom she married in germany had so persistently objected to popas that she was eventually forced to choose between them any one who knew her well could easily understand why she chose popas while her actual self was the least changed, the least modified by experience that it would be possible to imagine, there had been, professionally, two Cressida Garnets, the big, handsome girl, already a popular favorite of the concert stage, who took with her to Germany the raw material of a great voice, and the accomplished artist who came back. The singer that returned was largely the work of Miletus Popas. Cressida had at least known what she needed, hunted for it, found it, and held fast to it. After experimenting with a score of teachers and accompanists, she settled down to work her problems out with Popas. Other coaches came and went, she was always trying new ones, but Popas survived them all. Cressida was not musically intelligent, she never became so. Who does not remember the countless rehearsals which were necessary before she first sang Isolde in Berlin? The disgust of the conductor, the sullenness of the tenor, the rages of the blonde Teufelin boiling with the impatience of youth and genius who sang her Brangaina. Everything but her driving power Cressida had to get from the outside. Popas was, in his way, quite as incomplete as his pupil. 
He possessed a great many valuable things for which there is no market intuition, determination, imagination, a whole twilight world of intentions and shadowy beginnings which were dark to Cressida. I remember that when Trilby was published, she fell into a fright and said such books ought to be prohibited by law, which gave me an intimation of what their relationship had actually become. Popas was indispensable to her. He was like a book in which she had written down more about herself than she could possibly remember, and it was information that she might need at any moment. He was the one person who knew her absolutely, and who saw into the bottom of her grief. An artist's saddest secrets are those that have to do with his artistry. Popas knew all the simple things that were so desperately hard for Cressida, all the difficult things in which she could count on herself, her stupidities and inconsistencies, the chiaroscuro of the voice itself, and what could be expected from the mind somewhat mismated with it. He knew where she was sound and where she was mended. With him she could share the depressing knowledge of what a wretchedly faulty thing any productive faculty is. But if Pappas was necessary to her career, she was his career. By the time Cressida left the Metropolitan Opera Company, Pappas was a rich man. He had always received a retaining fee and a percentage of her salary, and he was a man of simple habits. Her liberality with Poppas was one of the weapons that Horace and the Garnets used against Cressida, and it was a point in the argument by which they justified to themselves their rapacity. Whatever they didn't get, they told themselves, Poppas would. What they got, therefore, they were only saving from Poppas. The Greek ached a good deal at the general pillage, and Cressida's conciliatory methods with her family made him sarcastic and spiteful. But he had to make terms somehow with the Garnets and Horace, and with the husband, if there happened to be one. He sometimes reminded them, when they fell to wrangling, that they must not, after all, overturn the boat under them, and that it would be better to stop just before they drove her wild than just after. As he was the only one among them who understood the sources of her fortune, and they knew it, he was able, when it came to a general set-to, to proclaim sanctuary for the goose that laid the golden eggs. That Poppas had caused the break between Cressida and McCord was another stick her sisters held over her. They pretended to understand perfectly, and were always explaining what they termed her separation, but they let Cressida know that it cast a shadow over her family, and took a good deal of living down. A beautiful soundness of body, a seemingly inexhaustless vitality, and a certain squareness of character as well as of mind, gave Cressida Garnet earning powers that were exceptional even in her lavishly rewarded profession. Managers chose her over the heads of singers much more gifted, because she was so sane, so conscientious, and above all, because she was so sure. Her efficiency was like a beacon to lightly anchored men, and in the intervals between her marriages she had as many suitors as Penelope. Whatever else they saw in her, at first, 
her competency so impressed and delighted them that they gradually lost sight of everything else her sterling character was the subject of her story once as she said she very nearly escaped her destiny with blasius bulchaka she became almost another woman but not quite her principles or his lack of them drove those two apart in the end it was of bulchaka that we talked upon that last voyage i ever made with cressida garnet and not of jerome brown she remembered the bohemian kindly and since it was the passage in her life to which she most often reverted it is the one i shall relate here end of story two parts one and two